Welcome to episode number 31 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast, where we're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. Today's episode, we're talking about reconciling hygiene, that's food hygiene, with explosion safety in food processing industries. We're doing an interview with Dr. Chris Bloor, based out of New Zealand. Dr. Bloor, thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your, your experience in this field. Thank you very much for the opportunity. So Dr. Bloor is a PhD in spray drying applications from Messy University in New Zealand. He's already corrected me before the, the episode that I say it like a Canadian, so I hope I try to do a little better. Um, he has 19 years of experience with the New Zealand Dairy Research Institute, and then almost 30 years experience as a self-employed consultant after that, focusing on explosion protection, explosion safety, training and education throughout Australia, New Zealand, Europe, United States, and, and the rest of the world. So he has a, a really extensive background in this area. I actually met Dr. Bloor in Germany at Remy Safety Days in 2017. And the focus of that meeting was on spray dryers. So there's industry folk there. There was uh, researchers. I was presenting on the sort of early days of the instant database. Dr. Bloor was there as a spray drying expert. And the first thing that kind of stuck out to me was really his immense amount of knowledge and his background, but also his really kind of practical take. And I remember... I don't know if, uh, Chris, you remember this, but I remember there was one part of the two-day conference where somebody asked, asked you for some kind of tips or something, and you just stood up in the middle of the room and said four or five really simple things, like maybe you should add sprinklers in the venting ducts, because that's where the fire always is after you vent an explosion. And like things that just people's eyes were like, oh, that, that's just such a simple solution. So it just showed the amount of knowledge you had and background. So I was hoping out of this topic today, we get some of that really practical, really informational material through. So the topic for today is reconciling hygiene with explosion safety in food industries. And I think the best place to start is what really got you into this field in New Zealand and what do we, what do we mean by food industries? Okay, well, uh, every story has a beginning. And for me, it was a catastrophic explosion in a spray dryer in a milk powder plant in Northland in New Zealand, uh, early 1989. It actually ruptured the drying chamber. It wrenched the dryer out of its mounting. It was hung from the top of a steel frame building. It actually broke the welds and jumped up about eight inches or 200 millimetres. It blew about half the cladding off the building. So it was a pretty exciting event. There were only two people in the building at the time. Neither was hurt physically, but one of them had taken a sample from the plant only a few seconds earlier and walked past a hatch that subsequently blew off, leaving a two-metre diameter of six-foot-six diameter air patch of plaster on a wall that had been painted with two-body epoxy paint. And that kind of focuses the mind. Following that, the, uh, there was a joint working party set up between the dairy industry, uh, the New Zealand Insurance Council, the Department of Labour, uh, the Dairy Board, Dairy Research Institute, and they spent a couple of years developing a code of practice for the dairy industry spray drying plant. I ended up editing the final draft of the code of practice, which was issued in 1990 and subsequently reissued in 1993 under a different Act of Parliament. So that's that's how I got started. The food industry side of things is a little bit complicated because all foods, with the possible exception of salt, if you 
believe that to be a food, combustible because they've got calories in them or joules. If you look at any packet of food, any, any container, it'll have on it how many cal- kilocalories or how many joules of energy it contains. And they measure that by setting fire to the food in a controlled calorimeter and measure how much heat comes out, and that's how they report it. So by definition, foods are combustible. It's just that when we eat them, we combust them very slowly through our digestive system, and in a dust explosion or deflagration, the energy is released in perhaps a tenth of a second, which makes it far more exciting and far more hazardous. So where do we find combustible dust issues in the food industry? Well, there are two major areas. One is where the dust is not actually the product, but it's the byproduct of handling a food product. Obvious examples are grain silos, where the movement of grain creates dust through attrition as they're conveyed, stored and packed. Now here, the dust is a nuisance. It's a problem and there are very clever bits of equipment that can handle this granular-type products with minimal, minimal attrition and avoid getting the, uh, the dust emitted. So there are techniques to avoid some of these, and then there are, of course, techniques to mitigate the effect of an explosion should it take place. The area I've been mainly involved in, however, is when the foodstuffs themselves are combustible dusts. A good example would be flour or powdered sugar or milk powders or instant coffee, and you can probably think of others. Here, the, quote, dust, unquote, is actually the product. So if we are milling or sifting or conveying or drying these foodstuffs, we have a combustible dust as an inherent part of the process. So avoidance of dust clouds is just simply not an option. Now, just to make life more interesting, some of these foods are capable of self-ignition if they're allowed to accumulate in warm places. And self-ignition is a fairly common cause of dust explosions simply because we're pretty careful about all the other things, but self-ignition kind of creeps up behind us and hits us on the back of the head. Yeah, so that's a that's a really good background. And a couple of things I want to mention, the code of practice, I have a copy of that somewhere, uh, a digital copy, and I will get it out for the show notes because I, I believe it's the only publicly available code for for spray dryers. So that's a good reference for the for the listeners. And the food industry, that's a good way to break out the two different types, I think. I, I've either heard them called or called myself in presentation sort of indirect dust, if you will, and direct. So indirect comes from breakdown, attrition, as you're moving things like grain through conveying systems and bucket elevators. The, the breakdown, you, you don't really want it. You don't really need it. So the kind of the big goal, like you're saying, is to avoid generating that dust, if possible, and avoid re- releasing it. Then you have the other case, like in sugar or coffee, where it's you know a direct dust, like you're saying, you're going to have dust clouds in your equipment, in your miller, milling operations, in your sifters, and yeah, it's a, it's a question of how do we protect. It's it's harder to avoid having a dust cloud in those conditions. That's a really great breakdown in regards to hygiene. So I've heard this come up a number of times, and we've seen it in the U.S. Come with Safety Board reports, 
where they've mentioned hygiene versus explosion safety. Uh, a notable case of this is the Imperial Sugar Refinery, where changes made for hygiene reasons in closing the conveying system was done so that you didn't have foreign materials falling into the into the stream that caused the initiating explosion hazard and then led to, along with other things, to the catastrophic explosion. Um, what are some some challenges kind of reconciling hygiene and explosion safety? Yeah, that's really the the main uh, topic of, of this podcast. Um, and to some extent, they are contradictory. In a, a food business, food safety is paramount. Quite apart from the fact you don't want to poison your customers, a major contamination scare can actually kill a complete business. So food safety is absolutely top of mind. There are two main hazards, uh, microbiological contamination. Foodstuffs are food for us. They're food for livestock, but they're also food for microorganisms. So the fact that we've got a food means we've got something that's pretty tasty to a lot of life forms that we prefer to keep our safe distance from. The other issue, as you mentioned, is foreign matter contamination, which was the issue at uh, Savannah at the uh, Pure Sugar incident. So we need to keep foreign matter out, and we also need to avoid any form of microbial growth in our product. Now, in order to propagate and, and thrive, microbiological life forms, of which there are lots, uh, require moisture. So one of the issues we've got is to keep our plants dry. And that means all the time, except when we're cleaning them. We clean food plants with fairly harsh chemicals, typically uh, acids to dissolve uh, buildup of minerals on pipework and equipment, and alkalis to uh, saponify fats and uh, dissolve proteins. So we use some fairly harsh chemicals. This means that we very often use stainless steels as our preferred materials of construction. It also raises the issue of housekeeping. Housekeeping is very important, of course, from a dust explosion point of view, but it's absolutely vital from a product quality and safety point of view. So there is actually a, a synergy here between the need to, for good housekeeping for food hygiene and the need for good housekeeping for personnel safety to avoid destroying your factory in the event of a uh, uh, an ignition source or a dust cloud getting into the workplace. That's great, but it puts some fairly severe constraints on water deluge systems for firefighting and on some of the techniques you might want to use for explosion mitigation. I kind of something popped in my head there as you were saying that, and I was thinking about the imperial sugar, and we hadn't talked about this before, but do you think that there's a, a role to play? Well, so thinking back to Imperial Sugar, one of the recommendations that came out of the Chemical Safety Board report was that that the association that was involved had been there, had sent members out, uh, I can't remember, maybe four months before, and gave it a clean bill, like basically their top rating on hygiene for the, the sugar dust. And then when afterwards the Chemical Safety Board interviewed them, said, yes, we've done training on combustible dust. And then the, I don't know if they say this outright in the, US, the CSB report, but if you read it, kind of suggest, well, why didn't you say anything about the, the astronomical levels of combustible dust? 
do you think there's a role to play with the people that are looking at hygiene versus explosion safety on education side or even just awareness? Have you seen that in, in the industries that you work with at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. And a few years ago, I addressed a, uh, a conference in Reno, Nevada, run by the ADPI, the American Dairy um, Producers uh, Institute. And uh, I, they were a number of cheese factory managers in the in, in the audience, uh, like probably most of them in the US. And many of these plants have a whey processing facility attached. So whey is a byproduct of cheese making and the whey is very often dried and uh, used for feeding livestock or as a, as a food ingredient. I uh, walked across the stage of the uh, conference venue slowly and deliberately and then walk back again and I look back at where I walked and I said if I'm in your plant and I can see my footprints in the dust on the floor there is enough dust there to destroy your factory and kill your staff if it got dispersed and ignited and I've got to say there was a very very quiet audience for a few seconds at the coffee break six or seven managers rushed up to me uh, for more information. And this occurs to me as an issue because dry material like dry sugar on a floor or dry whey powder lying on a floor is much less of a microbial hazard because it's dry and it may be overlooked by the hygiene people. However, from a dust explosion safety point of view, of course, it's a massive hazard. Now, everybody says, well, we're not likely to have a, uh, a sudden dispersion of dust and a ignition source happening at the same time. And that's, that's perfectly true right up until it happens. When you hear that, it only it happened once in 80 years. They have pictures of imperial sugar with that dust level for 80 years. And they had fires and they had dust collectors explode. They've had flash fires in their packing rooms but never led to that catastrophic loss. So yes, it, yes, it's not very common. Yes, it's not very frequent. It took 80 years of those conditions until they got it right or got it wrong, whichever way you want to look at it. So yes, yeah, exactly what you're saying. I just, when I think of that, it kind of um, it rattles my cage a bit because when I read that in the, the Chemical Safety Board report that yes, they have the photographs going back 80 years for this facility or maybe it was 60 years, but um, that show those same levels of dust, then, then yes, it, it it can stick around and be that way for a long time without something happening. But it once something does happen, then it can be quite bad. Yeah, well, you get habituated to it, and this is the problem. Uh, your your defences, the first day at work, you may walk in and think, oh, this doesn't look very good. By the time you uh, retire 40 years later, you've got so used to it, you don't even see it. Um, and that that's that's a big problem. So there is there is definitely a a challenge because hygiene, foreign matter, moisture, these are things that can sometimes help to reinforce the message about safety, but sometimes they conflict. Yeah, just like you said about keeping things dry, right? If you if you don't have any moisture, then you don't have the microbial growth, but the drier the product is, the, the more of a flash fire and explosion deflagration hazard is as well. Well, it's even more important with sugars, and, and whey is mostly uh, lactose, which is the sugar in milk. These are used as preservatives. I mean, 
when we were young, our, our mothers used to bottle fruit that would make a sugar syrup and you would preserve a fruit. Uh, my mother, when we were very young, salted down beans from the garden in a crock, great big crock, maybe a uh, 20, 30 litre pottery jar. And you would layer beans, you would layer salt on them and then layer of beans, layer of salt. And the fact was that it acts as a preservative. Uh, because the osmotic pressure of the sugar or the salt in the microorganism uh, it, it basically explodes the bugs and they can't live. So seeing sugar lying around on a floor is actually not a hygiene problem, but it certainly is an, a dust hazard. Yeah, that's, some, that's a really good topic of discussion. I think we'll hear more about that, unfortunately, as, as we move forward. Because I, I, I have talked to individuals on the hygiene side that's you know still don't know about combustible dust, and probably people on the combustible dust side don't know anything about hygiene. So there's there's both sides need to to understand both sides of the coin, I think, in order to make it work. I want to kind of get your because I did mention that you have you have this immense background, you have a lot of really detailed knowledge, but then I don't know if you surprise people. Maybe that's not the right word, but you come out and then you say these these really simple tips that people can use to to make their facilities safer. In this area and related to hygiene and explosion safety, do you have any kind of tips you've seen through the last, well, we'll say, uh, you know, 30 years of experience in, in consulting in this area, or almost 30 years? One, one of the things that still horrifies me is the fact that we all agree that fires are quite bad, but explosions or deflagrations are significantly worse. And it's so easy to turn a fire into a deflagration by being careless or poorly trained. There was a video, uh, a YouTube clip um, referred to in one of your earlier combustible dust uh, weekly newsletters showing some people in um, British Columbia fighting a fire in a sawdust with fire hoses. And it resulted in a fairly massive fireball which engulfed three firefighters who were fortunately wearing full breathing apparatus and personal protective equipment and they were uninjured. But it was a, a classic example of uh, failing to uh, observe the do not disturb notice. There have been cases where the firefighting systems have actually triggered a dust explosion because they've dispersed the dust. So that's a, a, a real uh, no, no. When you are clearing up a spillage, and let's face it, sometimes product does spill, you need to be very careful not to use compressed air. You need to have means of collecting it up and uh, using an approved vacuum cleaner or just by physically scooping it up and putting it in bags and uh, avoiding issues like that. I don't know, various parts of the world get quite strong winds from time to time. And the impact of a slamming door can generate a massive amount of dust if there's a heap of powder nearby. And, uh, of course, there are no ignition sources anywhere, so you just get a dust cloud and a housekeeping problem, except the one day when there is a dust, uh, an ignition source, so you get a, a massive problem. The, the issue of spray drying, which is dear to my heart, involves deliberately creating an explosive dust cloud. Now, that not all spray dryers have uh, a dust cloud with a concentration as high as the minimum explosive concentration, but the possibility is always there, and there could be a local concentration somewhere which would cause a problem. 
the other issue I would want to emphasize is that because a lot of powders self-ignite, we need to keep them warm so that they're dry, so that they don't stick to things and build up a layer which will later self-ignite. And to this end, we have to make sure that we heat our explosion vent ducts on spray dryers uh, so that the, there's no cold spots on the inside of the dryer that can allow powder to be attracted and accumulate. And it's a really good idea if you do not use a recirculating electric heater to heat the vent duct because we had a case in New Zealand where this actually triggered an explosion in the vent duct, which then blew back into the dryer, which then blew the dryer out through the vent duct and put the fire out. And that was pretty much an own goal when it comes to explosion safety. The device used to heat the vent duct to prevent a buildup of powder, which would self-ignite on the inside of the dryer, itself ignited. So that's uh, an example of uh, using an inappropriate technique to do a very, very worthwhile job. And I think, so there's probably a few other examples I could think of, but um, we'll leave it for that. No, I like those. And I, I want to break into two pieces. So you kind of the response to, to a dust fire part, and this could be first responders, could be firefighters most likely. Sometimes these are volunteers, sometimes they're not. It's also sometimes employees. You have a fire in your dust collector, you see smoke, you open the door, um, you get backdraft and, and it leads to an explosion. Uh, so that I want to talk about that. And then the spray dryers are also another really important point as well. The reason the fire, the, the response to firefighters, actually those that are listening to the episodes as they come out will know that in episode 30 of the podcast, I talk about the, the five open challenges that I found from a, a book chapter on uh, combustible dust I was writing. Um, should come out in the next couple of months with the uh, Methods in Chemical Process Engineering. And it's a multi-author, multi-chapter book. But mine was really on, on lost history. And then I talked about some of these open problems. I put response to dust fires as a, as a real open challenge for employees, for firefighters. Un unfortunately, uh, just the, I think in January of this year, we had a, a firefighter killed here in, in the United States responding to a fire in a silo and, and that leading to explosion. And that's happened a number of times. I, and there'll be some references in the book of, of that kind of case. But then also the, the most common injury, I won't say the most, but one of the most referenced injury scenarios for um, employees in these, these large-scale explosions are a fire or smoke happens. Employees congregate around the, the thing that's on fire. Then a hose blows off or a door gets opened or a, a hose melts. U.S. Inc. Uh, hose melted. You know, in other cases, in, in Didion Milling, the hose, I think, blew off of the, the, mill, the mill application. So then you have the employees in the worst place when this happens and if they're fighting the fire, then they're even in a worse place because then they're, they're there, they're engaged, they're active to it. So on that front, do you have any, I mean, this is a really big question, but um, for, for maybe both firefighters and employees, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what these open challenges, I don't know if we can get some university groups together or who, but you know, is there a recommended practice on how to deal with um, a dust fire in your dust collector or in your gap mill or in your sifter? Um, you know, What's the way to go? Absolutely. This is an area that's concerned me deeply for a long time. And I've run over 140 half-day fire and explosion safety courses just in the 
powdered milk industry worldwide over the last 20 odd years. And whenever practicable, I try and get the local first responders along to the seminar so that they can understand a bit more about the nature of the problem. Uh, in Australia, the different states have a uh, rural uh, fire authority or a country fire authority. In New Zealand, we have a recently rebranded uh, New Zealand Fire Service, which is now called Fire and Emergency New Zealand. And I've run courses for both for um, firefighters in their stations, but also had firefighters come along to the industry seminars so that they can understand the difference between a dust fire or a fire in a powdered product and all the other kinds of fires that they're used to fighting and are very, very good at. So it's, it's a massive problem. The enthusiasm with which people who are trained as firefighters try and fight fires is usually commendable. But in the case of dust, there's only one thing you need to remember. Do not disturb because it will turn a, a fire into an explosion. Yeah, you mentioned the do not disturb sign at the very start, and, and I think that was figuratively, but uh, that's the that's the biggest takeaway. And I've heard, I haven't seen Henry Pearson present on this, but I've, I've read his, he's, a, he's a, a book out of Sweden on fighting silo fire, fighting fires in silos, uh, recommended approaches. And, and basically the biggest takeaway that he has there as well, or one of the big ones is do not disturb the, the dust. Do not get airborne because that's when you can, you can end up with a deflagration hazard. Yeah. Now, I, I'm an engineer, and there are a couple of lessons I was taught very young. Never open anything you can't close quickly. Never close anything you can't open quickly. Now, if you think about that, and then you look at some of the videos of people fighting fires in dust collectors and uh, sawdust bins and the like, you'll realize that uh, being able to shut something you've opened briefly <laughs> can be quite life enhancing and likewise if you've um, shut something uh, or, or opened it and you can't reverse that action uh, swiftly without hazard then you really need to think about what you're doing. One of the issues we get with self-ignition is we get powder in a silo it might be 20-30 tonnes of product and if it's in warm over above about 55-60 degrees C it will slowly cook up over a period of days and it then has to be jackhammered out because it sets like concrete. And the people who are doing the jackhammering, the soles of their boots are melting with the heat. And that's hazardous in many ways. But again, you've got to experience this to appreciate the full force of the desire to get the equipment clean so the product can be, um, the plant can be back on product and making money with the problems of trying to uh, move quickly in a situation where moving slowly is is the only safe way to do it. Uh, a couple of issues about foam I'd mention, um, there are some very clever uh, firefighting foams available which have enormous wetting power. They are completely useless for dust fires except for dust suppression. If you put a foam blanket over product, a powdered product that's on fire, it will suppress the dust, which is a valuable thing, but do not for one moment imagine it's going to put the fire out. That fire will burn for a week or two underneath. So it's learning 
to do gentle, low-pressure soaking. And if it takes you a couple of days to put the fire out, you take a couple of days because the alternative is to have a much faster event altogether, which will harm people. Yeah, I can see a case where you maybe put that foam on, you let it sit, and then you go in with a backhoe and and you know start cleaning up a day later or whatever, and, and then there's your there's your there's your flash fire, right? Now, one, one other issue with regard to the sort of education of people is the relevant enforcement authorities, the regulatory authorities, the people who come in and say. Um, uh, we, we're going to cite you for a violation here or are you going to uh, issue with a stop work permit or whatever the, the appropriate jurisdiction, uh, the powers they have. Um, it's been my experience in North America that the level of training of some of these people is variable. Uh, some are pretty, are pretty much on the ball. Some are fairly new. Uh, it's a similar incident with, with with firefighters. Firefighters are very, very good at about 90% of what they do because they do it quite often and they're good, they're practiced at it, they're experienced at it. Dust explosions are relatively uncommon and you could be 20 years in a fire service somewhere without seeing one. So the level of awareness and training uh, is, is not as good as the, for the bulk of the work they do and that's quite understandable. The same thing applies to the regulatory authorities. They are not always fully up on the intricacies of the hazardous dusts, whereas they are on many other aspects of their job. And uh, I think the, uh, industry and, in fact, your, your combustible dust um, program is, in fact, going to show a considerable benefit as more and more of these people um, raise their level of awareness of the issues. I appreciate that. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, the key word that you're using, I think, is that the level of understanding is variable and that the level of engagement, how much time you see that, like how many iterations or incidents or, or whatever you see. That's one of the reasons why bringing an outside expert in is, is important because they've, if you've only been in the one facility your entire career. You may not see a whole lot. Um, but if you, you know, if you've spent a lifetime, like you have traveling around and seeing every facility. So I don't know, a hundred wood processing facilities. Then you get to see the kind of the broad scope across the, a bunch of different data sets, what that is. Exactly. Chris gave me a couple, a couple resources, and I'll just rattle them off, and we'll include them in the show notes. Um, one is we'll, we'll pull the code on spray dryers. We mentioned for New Zealand. I'll make sure the link is in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 31. Um, also, a, a book called Dairy Powders and Concentrated Products. Um, there's a chapter, uh, chapter 11 in that text, which I think... Uh, Dr. Brewer played a played a part in writing, which is hazards in the the drying of spray dryers. I know we we mentioned the spray dryer hazards, and that was actually the topic of this Remy Safety Days where I met Chris at. Um, but I have a feeling if we if we go down that path, we may uh, we we may be here for another hour or so because <laughs> it's a it's a pretty deep topic, and a lot of things come up like well, like Dr. Brewer saying, deposits on the side of your spray dryer. You really want to avoid that because that's that's where your ignition source is, and that can drop down to the bottom. That can be ignition source down the line. Uh, it can also be ignition source in the the actual um, top part of the vessel where you have a combustible dust cloud. Uh, that's kind of the purpose of the, the the device. There's a lot of things around sensing. I think uh, I think Chris mentioned that that most spray dryers in New Zealand now have CO monitors to be able to sense whether or not there's um, that buildup and that self heating of the product 
Oh, I guess the other reference I had here was the approved code of practice for prevention, detection, and control of fire and explosions. So that is the that is the publicly available practice that you mentioned, correct? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So those are some some resources. I'll, I'll go through a summary of kind of what we went through in this episode because there's been a lot of great material. And then maybe we'll close out on on kind of what you see as some of the open challenges. So we started talking about spray dryers in in New Zealand um, on the combustible dust side. We had in 1989 a pretty large explosion there, which really was a, a catalyst to some groups working together, the dairy industry as a whole, um, the Dairy Research Institute, other government organizations. This led to the, the development of this code of practice. Uh, we talked about food industry and, and characterizing some different kind of groups. We have those that create dust indirectly from attrition, from breakdown of the material, and those where the dust is the, the, you know, the key component, what you're selling or what you're trying to manufacture, what you're trying to get. And the approach is a little bit different there. If you're breaking it down, it's more a case of fugitive dust, more about getting rid of the breaking down or not having the dust be expelled. Um, and then in the other case, it's harder to get rid of the problem. You need to look at, okay, where are we actually going to have a, a dust cloud? Uh, we talked about self-ignition, which is another topic that um, I, really, I really would like to get into a lot more. One case, and I'll see if we can find the video for this, that sort of ties this all together because we talked about some other things like uh, fires and disturbing fires. I, there's a there's a video of a coal dust fire in Shanghai coming off the boats. Um, the coal itself ignited, and and this is pretty common. We in the which episode is this? The podcast episode with Alan Tilsley, uh, episode number ten. He said that basically every shipment of wood pellets that they receive um, in the UK or or not everyone, but a vast large majority come on fire. <laughs> Basically, because they're they're traveling across the the water, and when they get there, when they come off, they're they're smoldering to some degree. So in this in the Shanghai case, the coal dust was smoldering, eventually caught fire, and they were they were moving the whole containers around. So you have big shipping containers full of smoldering coal, and as they're moving the containers, the doors are opening, and dust is coming out. And I think for three days straight, they had the, all these flash fires going off, and it was uh, it's pretty pretty spectacular looking. Um, I'll see if I can find the video and include that uh, in the show notes as well. But the, the point there was, you know, self-ignition is a big issue. It's a big cause that leads to a lot of these explosions happening. And it's pretty under, uh, maybe underestimated is, is, is maybe that's the right word for it. We talked about fires are, are bad and deflagrations are, are worse. That kind of ties in the same thing. There's a really good quote that Chris said that I'm probably going to use and credit him at some point, but Never open anything that you can't close right away and, and never close anything that you can't open right away. I think that's a, a really good tip. Yeah, and then we talked a little bit about the regulatory framework and some kind of difficulties with education um, in that area as well. So with that, Dr. Bloor, are there any kind of open challenges or anything else you think that the, you know, the community that we're developing here with dust safety science and you know, the different standards organizations throughout Europe, throughout New Zealand, Australia, throughout North America, what are, the, what are the open challenges that we have to just making these industries safer overall? Well, the, the first and most obvious one is just raising awareness. Um, it, it, because these incidents don't happen that often, people just don't, they, they're not attuned to them. And uh, in retrospect, if you, if you wandered around somebody's factory with a video camera and then presented to the senior management the uh, potential hazards they're facing, uh, you know, they, they'd go pale. But, but they're, they're just not, it's not high up on their list of things that they notice. 
Um, and you can see why that is. But if, if you're not even aware there's a problem, then doing anything about it is, is not even on the table. Once you've recognised there is a problem, you need to be able to bring resources to bear on it. And those resources need to be competent to apply appropriate uh, mitigating or coping strategies. For example, we don't use aluminium or aluminium fan uh, components in the dairy industry because caustic soda dissolves aluminium and produces hydrogen, which is a well-known um, explosion hazard <laughs> in its own right. So there are issues there uh, of materials of construction that may or may not be appropriate. Flexible connectors are an issue. Uh, large, a lot of our uh, plants, food processing plants particularly, have moving parts or different parts that expand at different rates and there are flexible connectors between them. And making sure they're explosion rated is really important because otherwise they're potential places where a, a, a flash fire or a deflagration could emerge and, and into the workspace. The regulatory authorities need to be uh, helped to get up to speed so that uh, there is a, uh, a consistent approach. Uh, one of the difficulties in many countries is that there's an inherent antipathy between the people building and, and operating plants and the regulators, and it's often caused by liability issues. If you can work together, and this happened in New Zealand 30-odd years ago, if you can work together with the insurers, the, the companies making the equipment, the companies buying the equipment, and the regulatory authorities, and agree on workable practical, financially sensible and um, human safety focused ways of tackling these issues, everybody wins. If it becomes a litigious situation where you can't admit you've got a problem because you're immediately liable if anybody's hurt two minutes later to a system where you can work together with a, the regulator over a say 18 month period to uh, fix a problem, it works so much better. So joint action, collaborative action, getting whole industries together to face a common problem rather than keep everything commercially secret within each individual competing company. So they end up all running hazardously when in fact they could have all run safely. These are really, I think, some of the key issues. And you'll notice they're all human factor issues. They're not equipment. They are about people. And uh, as a closing comment, I'd say that 90% of all accidents are caused by people and the other 10% are caused by personnel. I couldn't agree more with those those statements. And I, I mean, you, in terms of the, the working together and the need to do that in terms of regulators, in terms of industries, in terms of getting whole industries together to, to share you know, safety is not a, a commercial asset, but something that, that we can approach. That's, that's basically the mission statement for dust safety science. So you kind of, you kind of said our sort of 10 year, 10 year vision. So that's all um, really, really important. Like you said, it's not, it's a, it's a people problem. Or anything. We have all the technical solutions. And if you go back, I've, I've shared some reports um, recently, and they'll be in this book chapter I'm writing as well from the 19, I'll say 1950s, 1940s, 1930s. And they're talking about venting and isolation and, you know, the same technical solutions we're, we're trying to instill today. And those, those aren't really the real challenges we're having. The real challenges are with the, you know, the people and getting enrolled in with education and awareness. And 
yeah, making sure all stakeholders are included in in that discussion is is a is a fundamental thing that's needed. So yeah, with with that, I just want to say thank you, Dr. Bloor, again for a, a really great podcast episode. I think there's a couple more out there that that we need to have, but. By the sounds of this, um, we were going to discuss regulation in New Zealand, but we didn't even get there. And then there's a couple other big topics. So I just want to say thank you again for for taking the time to do this. And um, I know the audience is really, really going to enjoy this this episode. Thank you. So you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Chris Bloor, based in New Zealand. And we've been talking about reconciling hygiene and explosion safety in food industries. But then we actually extended that to quite a discussion on a number of other topics. Uh, if you have a, a suggested topic for the podcast, you can go to dustsafetyscience.com slash ask, A-S-K, and you can ask it there. Um, we'll bring on a subject matter expert to to discuss it. Uh, if you have a question about this specific podcast episode, definitely go leave it there or leave in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 31. We'll get Chris back on and if he's generous enough with his time uh, to, to really go through those. We've had some great questions come in through that system. Um, we've had some around liability for equipment manufacturers. What do you do when somebody doesn't want to buy safe equipment? Fire retardant clothing. How do you how do you choose what fire resistance level you need uh, if you have the potential for a flash fire safe? You're cleaning up dust. Some of these things I don't know the answer to, but we put those on places like LinkedIn and and through the podcast, and we're getting great responses on those. So we'll include the the LinkedIn questions on both of those. The the fire resistant clothing actually is ongoing right now. If you have any other questions like that, these don't the answer up. Again, you can go include those at dustsafetyscience.com slash ask, A-S-K. You can do that through text or just through the speech drop there. Uh, and we'll get those through those to the show. So as always, I, I appreciate you listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I say have a, a very safe week ahead. I really look forward to, to keep putting out more episodes with lots of other people from the Combustible X community that are doing big things and keeping these industries safe every day. So thank you very much. I look forward to talking soon. 